Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Friday mornings for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Yes, thank you. Always good to be with you on an Arab Shabbos. Yeah, uh, crazy night down in Dallas, as we know, and uh, many sensitive situations seem to uh, lead to some um, very interesting times here in this country. Any thoughts in the uh, aftermath, in the very, very early aftermath of what has uh, been uh, one of the most vicious attacks on law enforcement in this country? I mean, I think everybody is stunned by the uh, by the death of five policemen and the wounding of six, and uh, recognizes that obviously this had to be a well-coordinated uh, effort. There must have been training. There must have been uh, time put into this, and how they reacted or organized so quickly around this event is a question I'm sure that they will be will be looking at. But I think it it adds to the tenor both after the other incidents during the week and the um, political campaign and the charges of anti-Semitism, racism that, that are, uh, abound, uh, that people's skepticism or concerns about the direction of American society and the rifts within the society and the tendencies towards extremism uh, is, is um, I think, becomes more and more justified and, and warranted. I don't know that there's any easy answers, but there's clearly um, a, a major problem that we have to, that has to be addressed. You just touched on um, uh, the anti-Semitism issue seeping into the presidential election. I know it's not a topic that's uh, that one you feel is worthy of discussing, meaning the presidential election at this point. As we get closer, I'm sure obviously we'll have things to say about it, but it, it could not have made you happy that this issue somehow crept into the national scene uh, because of one of the presidential candidates? Uh, I, I'm not sure crept is the right <laughs> word for the way <laughs> Leaped. <something. laughs> yes. Came crashing down on, uh, right. on, on uh, this week. And, uh, you know, the, the, there were so many elements both in, in terms of the, the Star of David story or and, and the you know statements about it and then counter statements about it both coming from from individuals and and people related or uh, in other ways and the the um, you know statements by uh, Max Blumenthal about Elie Wiesel everything seemed to take on a Jewish tone and a Jewish uh, character that that the um, uh, I am not happy about it, very unhappy about it. I don't think this should be the issue. And I hope that uh, that we're past this now and, and these, this will, will uh, uh, not color the rest of the campaign. But the, what, what is equally disturbing to me was the reaction of people who wrote about it and how, as others previously did, reported the huge amount of anti-Semitic emails, calls, threatening calls, and stuff that they received uh, for whatever they, they wrote, a, a critical of a candidate or, or about a particular issue. And that, that worries me. As I said, I think there's something fundamental going on in American society. There, there's a frustration. There, there's anger. There's uh, a readiness to, to leap on uh, to anti-Semitic uh, reactions. And 
I, I, I just I think it's too early. Obviously, we don't have a, a grasp on all of this. But to me, those are are very disturbing things about looking at something more fundamental than the particular issue. Right. Uh, you you would call it, though, uh, not unexpected, right? I mean, uh, we know from history that very often Jewish issues or attitude toward Jews, uh, you know, seep in or leap in to these, you know, confront- political confrontations and conversations. And this is not, this is not, un- it may be somewhat unusual for this country, but it's not that unusual in terms of the uh, you know the broader picture of our history. Well, it's an, it has been true in America too. Throughout uh, the country's existence, we've had manifestations of this kind, and of course, times when it was much worse than it is now. The question, really, the test becomes: How do those in authority deal with uh, manifestations of anti-Semitism? Traditionally, that's the measure. It's not whether society has haters; it's how do they address the haters? How how are they held to account? What steps are taken? But today, with Facebook, with the with the internet, with all of these tools that enable people to communicate anonymously, even hateful messages to large numbers of people, and without any counter, without the ability to answer all the thousands of anti-Semitic websites, all of the hateful and other uh, bigoted uh, sites. It, it's a different quality than than before, and a different volume, I guess, as well. Yes, of course. Um, you mentioned Ellie Wiesel. Um, we we often during this segment, uh, when appropriate, point out how one person can make a difference, and you've encouraged people out there to view themselves as people who, as individuals, can make a difference. Uh, what can you tell us? uniquely about him. Uh, there's so much that's fascinating about his life and the way he approached what he went through and the representative that he was for both a tragic event and really for the Jewish community at large. What, what could you tell us that we might not know about how he projected himself in the Jewish world publicly? Well, there really is a lot. And uh, at the Shiva yesterday, I was listening to other people and, and was asked to count a uh, personal experience I had early on, and he was one of the first people I met when I came to New York. He was very active in Soviet Jewry. He was uh, obviously a, an advocate. He wrote the book, The Jews' Silence, which was uh, a landmark event in the Soviet Jewry movement and was clearly identified um, with the movement very strongly. Um, but I, I had uh, arranged the first Jewish Heritage Week, National Jewish Heritage Week announcement by President Ronald Reagan, and we had a ceremony in the White House, and uh, I invited uh, Ellie and uh, the president of the JCRC, then was uh, Peggy Tishman and myself. We went to the White House at a time, if you recall, the Bitburg controversy. Oh, yes. Broke out literally simultaneously. And I think it was the, that, the day before that we really found out that the president was going to visit Bitburg, and if you remember, it was Pat Buchanan and others who right. organized it and arranged it, and they didn't want to back off because at Bitburg, it's a cemetery in Germany that the president was paying an official visit to. Uh, they well, it was, it, it was a military cemetery, right? That was the issue. Well, it was a military cemetery with SS people right. buried there. Correct. And, and so designated. Right. And... You know, people obviously objected to it. And Don't tell uh, me it was at that meeting that he chided the president in front of the entire world. Was it at that meeting? That that right. that, that exactly famous speech? Exactly the point. And uh, that's very good now. What kind of guts? What kind of guts at that? Place. 
Right. Oh, and, I love that and quote. Before that, he, he said to me, look, I don't know if I can come because I really have to tell him how I feel. And I said, look, you tell him because I have and I will find the opportunity to do it as well. And we I did have a private meeting with the president before where he told me something remarkable that, that he said he had never told anybody, but that when he left the army, I think in 45 or 44, he was in a film unit. He said, I stole a film. And I took it with me when I left. And it was a film of the concentration camps. So it had to be 45, I guess. And he said, because I thought that the time would come when people would say this didn't happen. And I wanted my grandchildren or their children to be at least able to give a firsthand testimony that it did. Oh, wow. Now, remember, this is a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, that foresight was amazing. But that... We had a private meeting, and then when he went out, and you know, he made that famous statement and those words. And when you ask about his, amongst his gifts, was this unique ability to articulate the causes and to find exactly the right words to that encapsulated. That's it. It was the combination of the guts to do that in front of the President of the United States in his house, right? Essentially, it was in the White House, correct? Right. So do exactly. it in front of the President of the United States and in front of the world. And But his choice of words, his choice of words was always spot on. Right. Was, it was just incredible. Was something you would walk away to quote. Exactly. Just amazing. And um, the combination of those two things, having the nerve to do it and saying it the right way. And when you think about it, the quote is not really, you know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a challenging or demeaning quote. It, it, is, it is a... No, it was respectful. Exactly. It was critical, but it was respectful. Right, exactly. And they went, we went on. I mean, it didn't end with that. Right. Not the time to go through that whole history, but the, the, ish, the, the incident to me was reflective of, of who he was. And, you know, if I would call him and tell him that we had an event against Ahmadinejad, against uh, about Soviet Jewry during all of those years, but also subsequently on, on Israel, his answer was yes. Right. He didn't ask me how many people are going to be there. He didn't say, you know, who else is speaking. His answer was usually yes. And, uh, and you know, when somebody reaches the heights that he did, would have a right to be you know, more, uh, let's say, selective. or Sure. But he did not. And he, he was always there for, for the community. I was always intrigued by his insistence that the Holocaust remain... Um, essentially exclusive to Jews. And what I mean by that is when, when interviewers would ask him, could the Holocaust happen again, this type of thing. And remember, we're in an era where, and you, you, you practically every week tell us about <laughs> different situations, whether it's ethnic cleansing, whether it's episodes in different countries where literally there are massacres taking place you know, on a regular mm-hmm. basis. And, and, and he could have taken that approach. But, he, but with all that, and by the way, he fought for all those causes and was very outspoken about all those causes. But with all that, he always had this underlying premise that the Holocaust had to remain unique to the Jewish people. Did you think that was the right perspective? Uh, I, I did, and, and that the word Holocaust was appropriated by people in ways that diminished it. You cannot just use it as a, as a normal term. Genocide is one thing. There are, he rose and spoke for, against genocide. I spoke at the UN recently for the anniversary of the Tutsi massacre in Rwanda, because if we, if we are really pledged to never again, we have to speak out when there are injustices and certainly mass atrocities and things like that. All right. But the 
uh, what his message and one I share is that the word Holocaust is meant to, to reflect a unique event where one people was singled out in such a massive way with the complicity of so many others, complicity we always learn more and more about, that uh, that he felt, and I feel that the word and the, and the identification has to be unique. It does not mean you can't say there are other genocides and there are other horrific things and there are words that can be used to describe those events. But he wanted to keep this term separate so you don't diminish it and demean the unique nature of the Holocaust. Mm, unbelievable. So many lessons to learn from him. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. I know there's a lot of hard news to get to and a lot of things to discuss, but just indulge me for a moment. It's such an important thing that you always point out, and I think we have a unique opportunity to really drive this point home. I saw uh, Yossi Baumel earlier this week, and he says to me, he's with Yeshiva Mokar Chaim, a high school in the uh, in, in Harei Yehuda, and he says to me that uh, over the last year, six boys in the in the Yeshiva, in the high school, ha- had become Avelim, had become mourners because of episodes relating to terror attacks which I thought was unbelievable in terms of the sheer number. And, you know, we're not talking about a massive high school. And, um, and then I checked back with him just to, you know, get the accuracy of all this. So th- it's, it's not the last year. It's actually since the boys were kidnapped two years ago. But since then, Captain Benayas Sarel fell in protective edge. He's a graduate with a brother now studying in that yeshiva. Uh, Dalia Lemkus was stabbed at the Gush Etzion intersection. She has a brother in the yeshiva. Shalom Shirky, a victim of a ramming attack in Yerushalayim, has a brother in the yeshiva. His other brother, TV reporter Yair Shirky, is a graduate of the yeshiva. Daphne Meir stabbed in Utniel is the son of a student. Son, rather. Her son is a student and her husband a graduate of the yeshiva. Captain Eliav Gelman, a Gush Etzion intersection uh, attack, graduate of the yeshiva. And, of course, Mickey Mark who was murdered last Friday after we had spoken on these airwaves. His son, Pidaya just finished ninth grade at Makor Chaim. And I point this out and read the list because you have reminded us countless times, and I'd appreciate if you would do it again, the ripple effect that every one of these terror attacks has on Israeli society, on families, on communities, on regions, and, of course, on the state of Israel collectively. And I, I think it's just a very important message. I thought about it again when, uh, as Rabbi Mark, uh, when you saw the pictures of the family, the wife who, who was badly wounded also and fought, fought for her life and came back and is being treated but still in very serious condition, and the daughter and the, the other children. And the news headlines die away, but they have to live with the consequences. There are children that grow up without a father. It's uh, the, you, you think of the emotional burden, the financial burdens, the, the personal impact this has, and the stoic nature of the responses of, of how so often, if you remember the, the three mothers, especially Mrs. Frankel, and how they comforted others, and that we read about uh, Halel's mother uh, comforting visitors yeah. and strengthening them. The incredible nature of the people involved, and and their dedication, and their you know how a parent doesn't go crazy. I don't know uh, at the loss of a child like this, and uh, or or a loved one in any event. But you know the the 
ongoing burden, and uh, there are organizations like One Family that, that uh, try to help and raise funds, because many of these people have very limited resources and depend upon the, you know, the breadwinner or the expenses that are incurred with treatment. We, 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 when somebody is wounded, uh, we don't think about the fact that this can be a lifelong struggle then. Yeah. So the, A, the, the, the heroism of the people, that they're not intimidated, that life goes back, that people resume life, and um, and it's a message about the Holocaust survivors. It wasn't a rational decision for many of them to rebuild their families, to, to take on the burdens uh, the, that, of what they went through and, and horrific experience that would have entitled every one of them not only to be, to be cynic, but to be angry, angry with everyone, and, and to um, not continue uh, with life. Uh, but this is Uvachart of Achaim. This is what we're commanded to choose life and the you know i was thinking about it last night the contrast that when you have these tragic things there always seems to be a corresponding event like the new discovery or or something they found the, the shul in the in the fifth century shul in in uh, the lower galilee a roman era shul yeah. with amazing depictions i mean unprecedented mosaics of Kriyas Yamsuf, of the splitting of the Red Sea, and of the and of the, the Teva of Noah's Ark, depicting the animals, depicting everything, and for all of those who are skeptics about the biblical here, this is sixteen hundred years old, and it's exactly as we see. You see the soldiers and the chariots drowning, and and a message to us to reinforce our faith to say, listen, guys, you know uh, this is a bad moment, but don't give up, don't. Don't feel that this is a uh, time for you to be the Mayayish and to give up hope or to, to become weak. I just think that the, the people of Israel deserve so much more credit than they get. And, you know, we have so many in the world who try to isolate Israel, trying to all the campaigns, whether it's BDS. And yet you see how in Africa this week, eight countries involved in, in, in coming together at a summit Tanzania, Tanzania announces an opening an embassy. Many of them talk about the trade they want to do. They, they media seventy Israeli businessmen went with him, and they had amazing sessions. I, I've heard that the president of Somalia holds a, a secret meeting with Hassan Sheikh Mohammed for the first time ever, uh, and meets with him. That that uh, Africa, which had cut itself off from Israel, you remember trying to chase that pot of gold at the end of the oily rainbow and found that they got nothing huh. today fearing iran turned to what country to israel and i got calls from other heads of state other african countries that wanted bb to visit there or or to be invited and they obviously couldn't do them all but today they all turned to israel did any of them have embassies before this none of them had nobody has the embassies in israel from the african and um, there are 54 countries if, if in fact, and Israel had, has aid programs in many of them. Rwanda uh, has had a very close relationship with Israel. Uganda has developed a closer relationship with Israel. I, I don't think, maybe Rwanda may have an embassy, but uh, I don't think uh, any of the others. And the this is such a big breakthrough. And then you see the skepticism, the cynicism, you know, people saying, well, it was a, a road show, it was this and that. It was profound. It opens up Africa to Israel, to Israeli business, to political purposes, for for so many things that are important. You know, I've discussed our other efforts in the in the Mediterranean area and elsewhere. Uh, 
to to break Israel just out of the narrow confines of the Middle East. But even in the Middle East today, you see how how uh, the atmosphere has, at least for now, changed. And unofficially, meaning not on a governmental level, there's been a uh, a surge in Israeli uh, uh, business in Africa over the last few years, right? There has been ranging from everything from prepix, which is a, a non-surgical circumcision device that uh, has affected millions in Rwanda alone, and it's uh, it's an Israeli invention that uh, cuts AIDS by by sixty-five percent. Circumcision cuts AIDS, and this is a way to do it without having because most of the people die from the infections to get in the hospital. So if this is non-hospital, this could be administered, but and education in medical tech and high tech and agriculture in so many areas that Israel has so much uh, to offer. And um, pretty so, amazing. And and the cynicism that I see it just it, to me it's it's astonishing. And, and Israel was or is now going to be an observer status of what of of uh, no they've asked for observer renewing its observer status which they used to have at the Organization of African Unity which is the EU of Africa. Um, as you know, I was there in at the uh, OAU meeting in uh, Equatorial Guinea, and uh, the Iranians went crazy about our presence there. Together, they were also observers there, and the Palestinians and a few others. Um, so there is still a lot of uh, animosity, but there is a, a clearly a sea change that is taking place in, in, in this regard. How uh, eerie was it? As And we played it on the air for everybody when... Uh, as you're watching Bibi Netanyahu speak, just meters from where his brother was gunned down 40 years earlier. Sure, it's, just, it's remarkable. And, and the president of Uganda said it was right to do what it did. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, in general, the praise that he gave to some of the African leaders in terms of their dedication to anti-terrorism was remarkable because, you know, frankly, we, we, we know what happens when people are recognized as, uh, you know, those who are leading anti-terrorist campaigns. It doesn't always end well for them, especially in that area of the world. No, and, and they look at the Middle East, they see the implosion in the Middle East, and they see the exportation of terrorists. Hezbollah, for instance, is active in many of the countries, and they're undermining the regimes. Uh, groups like Boko Haram that I know people recognize, but there are many such groups, and Al-Qaeda is certainly active, but they, many of these receive support from Iran and, uh, and from Hezbollah, but their activity is, is, uh, is growing, and as, as Hezbollah has more problems in in Syria, I wonder how they will be able to, to continue this. You know, they've suffered some big losses, and we see tensions with the Russians uh, around Aleppo, and that, uh, you know, they made an urgent call to some of the Iraqi militia, and um, and the, it said that the Iranians wanted to drag Russia into Aleppo by starting the fight there and hoping that uh, that would push Russia to play more of a role. And it, But it seems Hezbollah is the one who paid the, the price for uh, for Iran's gamble uh, regarding uh, that particular situation, but it, it's obviously there are, are many such situations right now. Paid the price in what way? That they lost a lot of fighters. Mm. I think they lost twenty-five just in that one one confrontation. But it, uh, it, it we know that um, that the Russia has not used its air force to protect the Hezbollah fighters, and they, they say there's a lot of exhaustion amongst the fighters. Uh, who are spread over several fronts in, in Syria, and that could uh, have also accounted for for the spike that, uh, and also the leadership has been hit 
And, uh, you know, without leadership, soldiers often do not respond in the same effective way. Yeah. You think Israel is going to finally do something about uh, protecting those who travel on Route 60, as it's been the uh, location of so many different terror attacks and murders over the last couple of years? Well, I know it's been discussed often in alternative roads and having uh, dual roads again, but then the international community says, oh, it's discriminatory, it's apartheid when you have uh, separate roads for Palestinians, separate roads for Israelis. But, um, you know, human life is worth more than anything, and whatever needs to be done, Israel should do. And we see how the international community, for the first time, you know, this quartet report mm. that we spoke about last week that right. I said was coming out, right. um, if you notice that it put the emphasis this time, and that is thanks to U.S. intervention, on incitement right. before the usual tirade against settlement. In fact, Abbas freaked out over that. And broke diplomat, right. broke, said he was breaking with the, relations with, with the, the quartet, right. he's not going to have any more dealings with them, right. etc., which shows a mature response to, the, to, to an issue that he has been warned about, talked about, pressed about for so long, and he refuses to respond to it. And, the, in fact, we see that it's gotten worse than the legislation that's been introduced. It's gaining support. Uh, according to statistics, I saw that in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, $172.5 million was allocated by the PA. I know in testimony of Congress they talk about $140 million, but I think that the 2016 budget of the uh, Palestinian Authority allocated over $170 million to pay for pensions, uh, rewards to terrorists, to their families. Uh, it's, it's called the pay-to-slay uh, system. Wow. And I know that uh, Congressman Engel and Congressman Royce, the, uh, Royce the chairman, and Engel the vice chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, have been putting out, uh, uh, put forward some proposals um, and, the, and saying that they're not going to continue to tolerate. And I'd say the administration cut back about $80 million out of the $400 million that the Palestinians are to receive, but we want to see bigger cutbacks. We want to see that there's a real uh, price that they have to pay, because otherwise we are paying then for the killers of U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Hila, for instance, was a U.S. citizen. Right. Uh, so were others who, who were killed even in, in the, the recent weeks. So it's a very important uh, message, but Abbas doesn't care what his people don't get. He doesn't care about the economic development that could that could be taking place. And he sees that the, that the world is passing them by, and that the Arab countries and others are reaching out and, and leaving them uh, uh, behind. And this is, um, this is the real tragedy there. Yeah, no question about that. Speaking of the, of the uh, PA, or in this case, speaking of Hamas, it's now, I'm reading this Jerusalem Post article, two years ago, Israel's longest, one of Israel's longest wars erupted on this date uh, two years ago. And despite the fact that a ceasefire reached with Hamas has held firm, the Gazan border today remains as explosive as ever. And I learned a couple of things from this article. First of all, <laughs> it's amazing the advancement in Iron Dome over the last two years. Do you see what its capability is now compared to two years ago? Yes. It's unbelievable. It's, it, and you know that there is even an underwater Iron Dome where there's special units of the Navy who work. It's called the underwater unit. Half of the members are women, by the way. They, they, and they have planted sonar devices to be able to, de to, to detect primarily Hezbollah, but also Hamas frogmen, that underwater they, can, they get an early warning system. Wow. And that uh, these people are used to install the systems to, to you know, work on missile boats from underneath, and their motors are, are underneath, and to neutralize uh, rockets and 
other submerged uh, hazards. Uh, and Iron Dome has and is continuing to evolve, which is why the funding issue is so important. Right. That there's so much, there's much more to be done, and also you need to purchase a lot of units. Just having the technology, but knowing that you have 130,000 missiles in the north, and God knows how many in Hamas's hands, um, that the that you need a huge capacity of David Sling, of the Iron Dome, all of them, to, to be able to respond. Iron Dome may look like it's 2014 equivalent, but other than appearance, everything about the groundbreaking system has changed. The batteries can intercept at greater range, deal with right. larger salvos, and have additional classified abilities. And I have my own conjecture of what that means. It must be amazing. I ring this up because we know about the network of tunnels that continues to be built you know, uh, around Gaza and into Israel. Um, and it's no secret anymore at this point. I think that anybody who lives there <laughs> knows it uh, because um, uh, they continuously report about noises underground. And obviously the Israeli government at this point, the military, knows about it. But it, are, are we getting to a point where it might be unnecessary to solve the tunnel problem by actually you know, going in and forcefully taking on Hamas because Iron Dome-like technology is going to allow the Israeli military to eliminate those tunnels without having to, you know, put people in peril and soldiers at war? Well, there is technology that has been developed to detect. Um, and once they detect them, then they have means of eliminating them. But remember, these are, are very intricate. And people always say to me, well, why can't they just collapse them? Why don't they flood them? These are far more complicated than what information. And by the way, there, there were some revelations this week that were very interesting because they found, uh, in at least two cases, guys who were working uh, to to aid in uh, Hamas. One was a courier. He, his livelihood, and he had a permit to enter Israel for business, but his livelihood, it turned out, is they drove a truck that removed the sand from all the diggings for uh, both rocket uh, placements and, and, and the tunnels. And his job was to go at night, the trucks you hear rumbling, and to remove the sand and hide it so that by the morning it wasn't there and, and it's very, you know, Israel couldn't detect exactly where the openings were. And he, he acknowledges, and, so, and he had $10,000 in cash in his shoes. And the Israelis obviously caught him and, and he told them about the locations, the technology, etc. And another guy who was also carrying $10,000 also in his shoes, uh, a similar circumstance, but not a truck driver, uh, but he was involved in the construction and also gave a lot of information. But it's a, a complex warren of these underground on the other side of the border. And Israel obviously is, is focused on those that cross and come under the border. And the ability to fight above ground does not in any way diminish the need because all, all you need is one successful raid. They can attack a kindergarten, they can attack a village, they can kidnap. They, their goal is to, to take hostages and to kill as many as possible. So it doesn't mitigate the need to have all of these resources uh, devoted to it. And you think, again, this little country has to have the abilities and develop abilities to confront so many uh, challenges at one time from the north, from the south, from potential other strikes from the sea. And, and by the way, the, the situation in Gaza um, really was highlighted this week because of the tensions with Egypt and Hamas. Uh, they, they canceled... A, an invitation to a large Hamas delegation that was to be headed by the deputy head of Hamas, uh, Musa Abu Marzouk, who were supposed to visit Cairo, and they canceled it because they haven't lived up to the the demands 
and said that they, they, these had to be addressed before reconciliation, and especially the question of them controlling the borders with Egypt, preventing Islamic State fighters in Sinai from getting into Gaza, uh, were among the key issues that uh, the Egyptians, uh, uh, on which Egyptians acted against the uh, Hamas. So Hamas has and is having internal problems of its of its own. I think, and God willing, have many more. Uh, but the uh, so the, the situation there is a that Israel and Egypt continue to work, and I would say ever more closely uh, on the, their mutual interests. ISIS is a big problem in the Sinai. It is not going away. It's there, but you know steps are being taken. And uh, again, and they're an ally of Hamas. Right. And if Hamas wanted to, at least according to what I read, if Hamas, so th- there's a, there's a love hate relationship between Hamas and and ISIS. Yeah, but if Ham- if Hamas uh, uh, requested that they you know take a position in the Sinai and, and launch rockets from there on Israel, they probably would, correct? Well, they have launched some, but they don't want to take on Israel. They know that the, what the response will. Well, be. that's my question: Does Hamas want to provoke Israel into a war now or not? No, for sure, they're, they're not ready for a war. That's why you don't see a bigger response, and often those who launch it may not may want to provoke it, but they're not. It's not Hamas does not feel it's ready, and they know that Israel's response this time will not be limited. And that's why the message from these people who were caught about how they're placing them near mosques, how they're placing them in civilian homes, the openings, or or the placement of rocket launchers again in civilian areas, so that when they talk about. Mr. Sanders, especially disproportionality, should read this and understand that it's not a disproportional response. It's it's hardly a proportional response to those who want to put civilians in harm's way and are doing it again, despite the war, despite the outcome and uh, the international focus. But they see that in the end, Israel gets blamed no matter what. Israel Israel should do what it has to do. The international community will do will will go along its normal path of of uh, condemnation of one sided condemnations. At some point, they're going to get tired of it because they all become victims of it. Well, yeah, but not soon enough. That's the <laughs> they become victims maybe down the road. But uh, they're they're much more concerned with condemning Israel and worrying about their own victimhood. Uh, is- well, but look at all, there isn't a country today in the Middle East that is not facing not one the, these challenges, which is why many of them. Are, are turning to to Israel, and you'd, you'd include Africa now as well. The way you describe and the it. African countries yeah. as well, exactly. And and uh, look what they face from Libya. Look what they face from Al Qaeda from Algeria, that who are infiltrating and and uh, Turkey. But I got It's got designs on it. Let alone Iran having designs on it. And you see, you know, the 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 expansionist and the caliphate drive of these. You know that that this is their manifest destiny. You see Turkey, by the way, getting very involved in Jerusalem. Yeah, the reports it, that they're buying religious sites, that they are active on the Temple Mount, it, that they it, are. It seems they were more desperate to uh, repair the relationship with Israel than anyone thought. Well, they, they have paid a heavy price for it. And right now, given the tensions he has with Russia, which he's also trying to repair, but his internal economic conditions are terrible, especially because the Russians stopped coming, Israelis stopped coming, Arkia flying, I don't know, 20 flights a week to, to the Greek islands because people aren't going to Turkey the way they used to. The, 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 he has a lot of uh, challenges himself, but you see the ultimate drive. They're building mosques all over Europe, all over in extremely large numbers, and these are radical religious establishments uh, teaching, uh, well, he is essentially Muslim Brotherhood, 
and uh, and and you see that the people demonstrating on the Temple Mount all of a sudden carried Turkish flags, right. and that the three Turkish citizens were amongst those who were arrested for provoking violence on the Temple Mount, and that that obviously Jerusalem is a critical um, uh, place for anybody who wants to assert their dominance in the region. So Turkey, despite the peace agreement, and I think it was very important not peace agreement, the uh, understanding that was reached, uh, which is not yet fully implemented or implemented. We have to see that they actually do everything, including sending an ambassador, um, uh, that their drive for, for regional hegemony is as strong as ever. Erdogan is, as I said, one who, who wants to see the Ottoman Empire established just as the Iranians. Khomeini has the desire and is trying to implement it worldwide to create his caliphate and the and the Persian Empire. All right, we got to go. I just got to ask you, why, why would you say Israel's response will not be limited this time? What gives you the confidence to, to think that that's going to be true? Because they're not going to have a choice. The, 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 the need to respond, whether it's against Hezbollah, the last time they were restrained, because if you remember, Hezbollah wasn't part of the government, and that they, so they didn't hit infrastructure of Lebanon. But today, they are part of the Lebanese government, so the, every target is a legitimate one and if they are struck. Um, I don't anticipate right now that Hezbollah wants a war either. It could happen. It can be set off. There could be skirmishes uh, that are set off. Israel has responded periodically. But what you're saying, you'd apply it to Gaza as well. The response and, will not be limited the like the same it was. thing, it does apply to Gaza. Right. In, in, uh, Boy, there are a lot of people in this audience who hope you're right. Well, look, I think people should go. People safe in visiting. Uh, uh, Israel is very much on the alert. They're doing things every day to address these challenges. There are no guarantees. There's no way anybody can know what these crazy people will do if their domestic situation uh, requires them, or, or, or if Iran wants to stimulate a response or another crisis, although they have plenty on their, on their hands right now. Uh, any of these things can really set off uh, an incident which can escalate, as we've seen in the Middle East too often, very much. Although, again, as I said, I don't think Hamas and Hezbollah right now have, would want to see because they're going to get uh, a response that will be, uh, let's hope, not proportional, uh, but effective. Yeah. All right. Uh, we will reconvene next week. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Good job. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. A weekly update Friday, 740 Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.